first one is from the book of Exodus and it's chapter 34 verses 29 to 35 and you'll find that on page 66 of the Bible that you're handed. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what had been commanded, what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. A flip over now to 2 Corinthians. So that's on page 818. And we'll be reading from chapter 3, verses 7 through to 18. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory, And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Thanks very much. Well, if you could keep your Bibles open to that passage, that'd be great. Thank you. Um, Welcome along to church again. I'd like to extend that welcome. My name's Des Smith. I'm one of the student ministers here at church. Uh, And it's just really lovely to see you here. Um, Just a little bit of admin, I suppose, before I go any further. Um, As many of you here may well know, who are regulars here at church, the church camp is on at the moment, up at Collaroy, uh, talking about the extravagant love of God. And if uh, you haven't been able to make that, uh, I suppose if you're here, you haven't, Uh, That's fine. Uh, The talks will be podcasted and they'll be available on our website, uh, church by the, you know, CW, whatever, CBTB, that's right, .org.au. Look that up on Monday and there will be talks there waiting, ready, eager for you to listen to them. Um, We're going to open the Bible, or we've already opened the Bible, but I'm going to try and explain it to us. So why don't we pray? Um, 
Dear Heavenly Father, we, we just thank you so much for the opportunity to gather around you tonight uh, to hear you speak to us through the Scriptures. And we pray that as we uh, listen, that our minds would be sharp, our hearts soft, and our wills ready to change as we hear our Creator and Lord speak to us. We ask all these things because they glorify Jesus. Amen. Well, as I said, um, I'm one of the student ministers here. I work here one day a week, um, but I wasn't always one of those. I've only been here in Sydney for oh, probably about two and a half years now. Um, I'm originally from Tasmania, um, so if you come and talk to me afterwards, please just keep it slow and simple. Um, but when I was down there, I used to work as a lawyer. Um, and it's funny, a lot of people will sort of say to me, you know, oh, now you're up here doing this kind of stuff and you were a lawyer. Like, do you ever miss the law? Um, now, I really enjoyed the law. Um, thankfully, I didn't have one of those jobs, which was a massive pressure, kind of 12 hours a day, kind of working on leases for, you know, countries which would sell other countries or something. Uh, I just used to represent petty crims and stuff like that. And I'd go down to the local magistrate's court or the local court, as it's called here in New South Wales. And I just used to love it. You'd meet all these absolute scallywags, um, some of them more serious than others. Um, most of them who knew a good deal more about the law than I did. Um, I remember the parting piece of advice that one of the magistrates in our training course taught us was read the law, know the law, live the law. But if you just don't know the answer, ask your client. He will have been there millions of times before. <laughs> Cynical, I thought at the time, but as it turned out to be true. Um, do I miss the law? Yeah, look, I do. Uh, there's, something, there's something really noble about it. Lawyers get a really bad rap. Um, but I think there is something about the law that makes it a noble calling. There's something inspiring about the law. You're defending people's fundamental rights from the greatest to the smallest. And in some small way, you really do feel that you're helping people keep on the straight and narrow, even if it comes in the form of tidying up people's messes once they've made them. So yeah, in some ways I do miss the law. But in other ways, I really don't miss it. Because as I continued to work through it, I wasn't a lawyer for very long, maybe about five years, even less. I realized that it had very limited power. That the laws of Australia, the laws of Tasmania, could really only do so much to change the lives of my clients. Those laws couldn't actually make them good people. They couldn't actually make them want to be good. All the laws really could do was kind of restrain them from doing, being too bad. The law was good, it's noble. But it can't really change people. It can't really change people in their hearts. Now, as, as we said before, we're looking through this letter tonight. It's the third sermon that we're looking at in this series, going through this letter uh, to the Corinthian church, written by a guy called the Apostle Paul. And I sometimes wonder whether Paul ever got asked the same question. Paul, do you miss the law? See, because Paul here has become an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's become a messenger, spreading the message of what Jesus has done on the cross, that he died for people's sins and rose again so that we could be right with them. But he didn't always do that. No, he used to be a bloodsucker like me as well. Paul, one of the big points of difference was that he was far more successful than I ever was, certainly far brighter. He was one of the leading religious lawyers of his day. He was one of the QCs of the Jewish legal system. 
knew his legal code, what we call the Old Testament, absolutely back to front. And he was a prominent and a well-respected man. You wonder if he ever got asked, Paul, why on earth did you chuck it in? You were a top QC. Why did you give up that good work? And let's not downplay it, it was good work. It's a good thing to do, to teach people rules about how to behave and how to live, how to change what they should do. Let's face it, it's what most people think the church is. When I tell people that I work for a church or people ask about religion, they generally think, well, that's about rules, isn't it? Isn't church where you go to learn morals? Isn't that where I send my son, my kids to Sunday school so they'll grow up to not beat up the other kids in the playground and steal their lunch money? Isn't that what church does? It like kind of injects goodness into you? I mean, in so many ways, it's not even different from our general view of rules. We think that rules will, will keep us straight. Motivational speakers like Tony Robbins, who earn gazillions of dollars with their kind of pounding up and down on stage, kind of telling people what to do and how to change their lives. They're always about rules, aren't they? The four rules you need for success. The five laws of financial advantage or whatever it is. Rules, we're told, are what make life worth living. Rules are what make us good. So, Paul, you are the rule man. You had a powerful ministry explaining to other Jews what exactly the Old Testament was about and how God wanted them to live. Why on earth did you give it up? Why would we here at church want to give that up? It's a good question. And it's one which this passage here speaks to directly. So for the next 20 minutes or so, why don't we get into this? Hear what God has to say about the rule of rules and their role. And I'm just doing it in two points. Two really simple points, if you're taking points, uh, taking notes, rather. The first of all is the ministry of glory. The second is the glory of Jesus. First point, the ministry of glory. Looking at verses 7 to 11 there. Let me just read to you those first two verses of that. Because I think the answer is pretty simple to why Paul would give this up. You can see it there in verse 7 and 8. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? You see, the context that he's talking about here is the the thing that we read about in that passage from Exodus. Moses comes down from the mountain of God in Sinai in the middle of the desert, He's received the law, the Ten Commandments from God. And the encounter has been such a powerful one, such a glorious one, that glory, literally brightness, is kind of oozing out of him. He's flooding out of him. He looks like a flood lamp. So much so that he actually puts a veil over his face so that people might not be kind of bedazzled by it. And that ministry here is the ministry of the Old Testament. You can see it there, you know, which was engraved in letters on stone, the Ten Commandments, the law. Why exactly has Paul chucked that in? Well, he gives two reasons here, doesn't he? First of all, because the job of explaining that law, in the end, brought death. The job of explaining the law actually brought death. 
Look again with me at verse 7. Now, if the ministry, when we know that that's the one which was engraved in letters on stone, the law, that brought death. How extraordinary. What is it about a law? What is it about the Old Testament legal code that kills people? Well, it's an interesting thing. Because I think it's the same thing that is common in many ways to all systems of rules. The Apostle uh, Paul here actually explains it, I think, quite nicely in another letter that he wrote, a letter to a church in Rome. Let me just read it to you. You don't need to look it up. It's from chapter 7, verse 7 and onwards. And he's talking here about his struggle with being a sinner. And will the law, will this Old Testament actually give him any help with that? Will Will it help him stop from sinning? What shall we say then, he says? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, don't covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every type of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. See, he makes two points here. The Old Testament, with all its rules and regulations, doesn't bring life. Because it can't bring change. All it does is point out my faults. All it does is point out my faults and show me that I deserve to be punished. And that's the same thing with secular laws, isn't it? With statutes and regulations and parking fines. Parking fines, unless I get an absolute million of them and I just end up going broke, such that I have to sell my car won't actually stop me from parking infringements. But what they do do is they show me where I've gone wrong. They don't save me from my desire to park illegally. All they do is they ping me for $70 whenever I do. But the law does more than just that. It doesn't just point out where I've gone wrong. It actually also stirs up the desire to do wrong inside me. That's what Romans says. Now at first blush that might seem a bit weird, but Think about whenever you've walked past a park, this beautiful green lawn. You're just going your merry way. You're just walking along. You never even thought of walking on the grass until you see the sign stuck in there that says, don't walk on the grass. And all of a sudden, my feet get itchy. I was walking in a straight line. I see the sign and all of a sudden I'm veering to the right. I seem to have this innate desire to break that rule. Why can't I walk on the grass? It's perfectly good grass. I haven't got sort of enormous muddy shoes on. That's fine. Of course I can walk on the grass. What's the problem? You see, rules sometimes point out things to us that make us want to break them. We're just naturally rebellious. You see, the law here, the rules and the regulations set down by God in the Old Testament, glorious. Glorious because they show us what God is like. Glorious because they show how good he is and his majesty and his amazingness. Certainly in comparison to me. And yet for that very reason, because those laws show us how big God is and how small I am. How incredibly good God is and how rotten and rebellious I am. Glorious. But all it does is condemn. It doesn't bring life. And it will never save me. But secondly, he goes on to say that, well, 
not only does it bring death, but the Old Testament system of doing things is outdated. It's fading away. You can see that there in verse 7. The face of Moses, because of its glory, fading though it was. You see, in God's plan, the law had only temporary value. It was never meant to be permanent. And how exactly is that the case? Well, we'll go on to see when we compare it to the new ministry that Paul is going on about. This new job that he's taken up. You see, because he ditches the Old Testament law, he ditches that because the new ministry is even better. You can see it there in verses 9 and 10. If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, shows us how good God is, shows us how amazing He is, even if it means realizing how bad we are, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness, that makes us right in God's eyes? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. You see, the ministry that Paul is on about now, as glorious as the Old Testament was, actually brings life. It actually makes people right with God. It doesn't just point out our faults. You see, the ministry of the Spirit comes in and shows us how we can actually be right with God. How because of what Jesus has done to come and die on a cross to save us, that by putting our trust in Him, we can be right with God. Not on the basis of what we've done. Oh no, the law's made very clear that we're rubbish on that count. But because of what Jesus has done. The ultimately obedient man. That if we put our trust in him, the fact that he died in our place, we can be right with him. Can you see now why Paul seems to think that although how glorious the Old Testament is, how it's just dwarfed in comparison to the glory of what Jesus has done. Imagine that, God coming to earth in in His Son, the sinless man, comes down to us, having shown us how grotty we are, us realizing that we're just not right in front of God. And instead of punishing us, dies on a cross on our behalf. Of course that's glorious. In fact, it's so glorious, as verse 11 says, or as verse 10 says, that it's so glorious now that the old glory has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. It's a bit like in a dark room, a candle is really helpful. It sheds light everywhere and it seems great. But a candle out of doors on a bright sunny day is no use because its brightness has been surpassed. Why have a candle when you can have the sun? And pardon the pun, why have the Old Testament law when you can have the sun. He's not saying here that the Old Testament ministry is bad, just that the new one is better. It actually changes people. And more than just changes people, just as the Old Testament ministry was temporary, fading away, this new one here is here for keeps. Look at verse 11. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts. You see, the Old Testament rules and laws were never meant to be a permanent code. Why would they be as they just condemn us? Rather, what they do is they point us towards Jesus. They make us realize our need for forgiveness 
and Jesus is the man who brings it. Jesus is the fulfillment of that law. It's a bit like engagement and marriage. I recently uh, got married and slightly less recently got engaged. That's generally the order these things go in. And uh, engagement is actually quite fun. Uh, you know, it has its various stresses and strains. There's kind of arguments with florists. There's kind of wheeling and dealing with reception venues. There's arguments about, you know, who should have which guest and, you know, whether it should be black tie or, you know, kind of thongs and speedos or whatever. Um, don't worry, we, we never really consider that as an actual option. Uh, I hate thongs. Um, but it's kind of fun. And it's made fun by the huge expectation of everything that's coming towards it. But the whole glory of engagement is in the very fact that it will one day end. The whole glory of engagement is that it points towards a marriage. And in exactly the same way here, the glory of the Old Testament always looks forward. It's always saying, you've done the wrong thing, but someone is coming. You've done the wrong thing, but forgiveness is at hand. You take away the marriage, you take away its glory. You get married and it's fulfilled. In exactly the same way, Jesus comes to fulfill that for us. No wonder Paul chucked in his job. No wonder Paul exchanged the glory of one thing for the glory of Jesus Christ, who would come to save us in a permanent, magnificent, life-giving ministry. And that brings us to our second point. We've seen the glory of his new ministry. And we see because of that, that the glory is ultimately the glory of Jesus. And the confidence that that inspires in Paul is enormous. Look at verse 12 there. Therefore, since we have such a hope, the hope that Jesus has come, that we are no longer condemned by God's commandments, we are very bold. And he's bold because the ministry that he's got is not like the old one. You can see there in verse 13, it's not like the ministry of Moses. Look at verse 13. We're not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it, while the radiance was fading away. You see, the law was glorious, but it was, it was fading. Even as they saw it in the face of Moses, so to speak. And yet as Paul looks on and hears the world around him, particularly at the Jewish world around him, there are some people who haven't realized that the glory of the Old Testament law hasn't faded. Look at verse 14. But their minds were made dull, that's the Israelites. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed. Because only in Christ is it taken away. Paul laments the fact that some people haven't cottoned on to the fact that the Old Testament law is in a sense temporary. That its glory is fading away. That Jesus has come to replace it. They've been looking on it much like the Israelites looked on the veil over Moses' face and because that's all they could see, they didn't realize that the brightness had gone from it. You may or may not have heard the name of a Japanese soldier Hiru Anoda. On the 17th of December in 1944, he was sent to the island of Lubang in the Philippines, a tiny little island there, to fight against the Allies. 
And not too long afterwards, in 1945, the Allies invaded Lubang and quickly suppressed it. But he was a loyal man. And he wanted to uphold the glory of the Japanese Empire as it fought, as it fought against its enemies in the war. And so he went bush and continued to fight a guerrilla warfare, even though the Allies had conquered it. The Allies quickly won the entire war. But Hiru kept fighting. Propaganda messages were spread around. Leaflets were sent around through villages. He would occasionally pick them up and yet dismiss it, merely as saying, well, this is merely the enemy trying to trick me, to try and lure me out of hiding. Hiru never actually surrendered until 1974, when a Japanese university student who'd heard of his plight tracked him down in the bush, showed him the news clippings from 30 years beforehand that the war was over, and finally convinced him that the glory that he had been fighting for for all that time, the glory of the Japanese Empire, had faded. It's just, it's a tragic story. It's so sad. And yet it's the same sadness that Paul feels here when people look for salvation, look for glory in the rules and regulations of the Old Testament, in rules and regulations generally, when they were never meant to save, when it was Jesus all along. And it's only Jesus who can lift that veil, so to speak. Look at verse 16. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. See, it's only Jesus who can really show us how rules and regulations work in this world and how they are not the way to be right with God. No amount of rules and regulations will make us right. It is only Jesus who shows us what true glory is. The glory of Him dying on a cross for us and our sin. And it's glorious because we're free. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We are freed from the law's demands. We are freed from being condemned by God. And more than that, it brings real change. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed, not condemned, being transformed into His likeness. Just ponder that for a minute. Being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. No number of do thises and do thats could ever change me like that. But only the grace and the glory of Christ could make me a sinner by his spirit look more, not less like him. And not just temporarily, but with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You know, I, I, I don't know everyone here in this congregation. 
I don't know where everyone's at when it comes to their relationship with God. I don't know what you think the Bible's about. I, I don't know what you think church is about. But maybe some of these things ring home. You might be a person who would not call themselves a Christian. And yet you really do recognize your failings. You really do recognize that there's something not quite right with your personality. That you could never really claim to be perfect. In fact, you couldn't even necessarily really claim to be that great a person. More specifically, maybe you feel that there's something not right between you and God. That if God were face it to face up to you now and uh, ask you how you'd gone with keeping his commandments, well, maybe that would be a long and a hard conversation. And maybe you realize that and you're frustrated. You're really frustrated that you keep making the same mistakes. You keep frustrated that you muck up and you say you won't do it again and then you muck up again and you lash yourself over it and think next time I'm going to do better but I can't do it and you know what the right thing is to do you know the rules but they don't seem to work all they seem to do is make you feel bad and sometimes if you're honest maybe breaking the rules is actually kind of fun maybe breaking the rules is actually a temptation to keep doing it well I want to let you know that help is at hand. Because Jesus came to die for people like you. Jesus is really explicit. He didn't come to die for perfect people. Which is good. He wouldn't have found very many. Jesus came to die for screw-ups. Jesus came to die for sinners. Jesus came to die for people who don't deserve it. In short, Jesus came to die for me. Jesus came to die for you. And in one short afternoon, when he died on a cross, he did more than a thousand, thousand pages of regulations and rules and self-improvement could ever achieve. That may not be you. You may be a Christian here, someone who recognizes this. But perhaps you still feel burdened. Perhaps you still feel the weight of God's demands and commands on you. And perhaps that, although technically you know you're saved by grace, technically you know you don't have to do anything to please God, that everything has been done for you. Technically you know that anything you do is simply in response to what Jesus has done for you. Not so you can get in God's good books. Maybe it doesn't always play out like that day to day. Maybe you find yourself doing all sorts of things to try and please God. Maybe you find your name increasingly appearing on lots of church rosters. You're busy every night of the week. You're increasingly exhausted. Of course, there's nothing wrong with that. It may be that you are doing that out of thankfulness. But we must check our motivations, mustn't we? Because if... In our heart of hearts, we're putting a foot in both camps. We're having a bet each way. On the one hand, saying we trust in what Jesus has done, but on the other, 
trying to hedge our bets by getting up a few good points in the bank. Haven't we missed the point? Don't we need to turn away from that? Because ultimately, if that goes too far, you'll just go back to the slavery you were in before. Trying to please God on your own. You'll never be free. You'll become increasingly unfree. And you won't be transformed into the image of Jesus. You'll just get transformed into the image of an increasingly tired and haggard you. No, Jesus is the person who can change you. His grace is what changes you. Accept it. It'll actually make life a heck of a lot easier. It's good news because it's Jesus who brings change. But finally, doesn't it mean this? That you can say with the confidence of Paul in verse 12, therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. See, the frustrations I had as a solicitor were real. I really did get frustrated when my client didn't turn up for his bail appointment for the fifth time. I really did get frustrated when the warrant got issued again. But if I thought that that was all there was to life, that there was nothing in my arsenal but just rules, I would have no hope. And I'd have no hope for me either. But to know that God has made, totally free of charge, a way open for me to be right with him through his son. And that that means he's made a way open for my friends, for the people I don't know, for this world that seems obsessed with rules and self-improvement and doing things. That he has made a way open that is not slavery, but freedom. That he has made a way open, free of charge, for us to be right with God by sending his son. Doesn't that give me hope? Doesn't that give me hope for my mate who seems lost in sin? Doesn't that give me hope for my family? Doesn't that give me hope for me when I screw up again? That I know that God is forgiving. Because he has shown it in graphic, cross-like form. We have hope. Because we have hope, we can be bold. We have got something we can offer this suburb. We've got not more rules and regulations like most people think church is about. No, we've got a gift. We've got the gift of life. We've got Jesus Christ. Shouldn't that inform us? Shouldn't that make us hopeful? I think it should. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of the Old Testament. We thank you so much for showing us so clearly in that, that we are sinners. That we come to recognize how bad we are when we see how good you are, as expressed to us in your law. And yet we thank you so much that you never stopped there, that that was in many ways a, a fading glory, a thing that was never meant to last, like an engagement to a marriage, that it pointed towards the ultimate salvation you would bring in your son, Jesus. And we thank you that if the Old Testament law wasn't glorious enough, you totally outdid yourself by sending your son in utter glory, 
dying for a sinful world so that we might be right with you. And not just right with you, but increasingly being changed to look like him. Dear Father, we pray, please forgive us for when we try and do things in our own strength. Please forgive us for when we try and please you out of our own steam. Please have anything we ever do for you be simply a thank you for the enormous grace you have shown in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, please help that hope fill us with the boldness that the Apostle Paul was filled with. That there was hope for a dying, desperate, haggard, tired world. That there was freedom and that his name was Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' powerful, glorious name. Amen.